Just one minor correction. I didn't bring him. He was here when I arrived. <laughs> and I've got good news for you. <laughs> He'll still be here when I'm gone. <laughs> and that is a wonderful thing to know. That we are <laughs> joint heirs together with him. Made in the infinite mercy and goodness of God partakers of his divine nature. Certainly a real joy, it's always a joy to be back here at his hill among so many friends, greeting not only the students who at this time are in residence, but also those of you who have so graciously come to share these few days with us. It's a particular delight for me to be coinciding in my visit with that of uh, John and Christine Hunter. And uh, we don't always or often have that privilege, but it certainly is a real joy for me at this time. I thoroughly enjoyed the ministry this morning, as I'm sure you did in the 9.15 hour. It's always a delight to be reminded afresh of our living, vital, dynamic relationship to the Lord Jesus, from whom everything stems, because it's with him that everything begins, and it's in him that everything will end. It's of him, and it's through him, and it's to him, all things, and to him alone be glory. In other words, there's only one person in the genuine Christian life who is to be congratulated. God himself. Let's just join for a moment together in prayer. We are grateful, Lord Jesus, for your invitation to us to meet in this way, conscious of your presence. So much more wonderful than among us, as the one who lives within us. With an open Bible that we might discover a little more this morning about yourself as the Holy Spirit with whom and together with the Father you share the triune Godhead. For we know it to be his supreme delight to take the things which are Christ's and reveal them to us leading us into all truth, into the treasure house of God's word that we might come out, not the wealthier, because we cannot be, for God has given already all that heaven affords. But with a new understanding, maybe, of the dimension of the provision that has been made for us, having discovered just a little more, dear Lord, of all that is ours, because of who you are, God, living where you do, in us. Thank you. And in your own dear and precious name, amen. <clears throat> Paul's supreme preoccupation for himself personally was his prime concern <clears throat> for the church. 
in general. And I suppose there's no place that more succinctly spells out for us what was his supreme preoccupation for himself personally than that passage that is found in the third chapter of his epistle to the Philippines. And we might just begin at that point. The third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians <coughs> in the Amplified New Testament verse 10 my determined purpose is that I may know him it isn't that there were other things that were unimportant or that there were not other things that he could learn <laughs> of which he could become acquainted the use of which could be valuable he didn't for one moment deny that or repudiate the fact. But this was his supreme preoccupation for himself personally. The supreme preoccupation. Together with everything else that he might accumulate, he recognized that nothing ultimately had any worth except in terms of its relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. My determined purpose is that I may know him that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Perceiving, recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly, more clearly. I'm sure that Paul enjoyed the fellowship of his fellow believers. He was delighted as we are on occasions to bump into others who together with him shared the fantastic privilege of making Christ known. He delighted in the fellowship of the saints. But he knew that all this faded into significance when compared to his understanding of the wonders of Christ's person. that I may, he said, in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection. The power which it exerts over believers, that I may so share his sufferings, that is, of my own free volition, so be identified with him in his death and by daily dying, make up those sufferings of our Lord Jesus that yet lacked, said he, to be fulfilled, as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, that if possible, in the 11th verse, I may attain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead even while still in the body. This was his supreme preoccupation for himself personally. That he might bear the stamp in a society of dead men 
that he had enjoyed a spiritual resurrection. Demonstrably obvious by that moral resurrection that transforms character that derives from the spiritual resurrection that imparts the divine nature. For if any man be genuinely in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and everything has become new. The resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead. Even while still in the body. This was his prime concern for himself. And being that, of course, it could not but be his prime concern for the, ch for the church in general. It sprang from his own personal enjoyment of the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus of which he had become a partaker at that moment in time when on the grounds of redemption there had been restored to him as God's gift that life that had been forfeited in Adam. <laughs> in other words, at the moment of his new birth, that spiritual regeneration, which is nothing more nor less, <coughs> he tells us in the third chapter of his epistle to Timothy, than the renewing of the Holy Ghost, the coming back of somebody to take up residence within his redeemed humanity through whom, as the Son enjoyed and shared the life of the Father, he now might enjoy and share the life of the Son. <clears throat> Basic, biblical Christianity in all its profound and sublime simplicity. So bearing in mind that this was the supreme preoccupation of the apostle for himself, let's turn to the first chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians and recognize that this was his prime concern for the church <laughs> in general. In the first chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians. <coughs> He's addressing himself in particular to those among whom were many whom he had himself had the joy of leading redemptively to the Lord Jesus. But we recognize from all his writings, as indeed of that <coughs> of all the apostles, that evangelism to them wasn't simply leading a person to that initial decision, which is the prerequisite of the Christian life, it's the premise upon which it finally continues a decision to receive Christ as Redeemer. Evangelism to him and to all the early church, as indeed as it has remained in its legitimacy all down the centuries, on the basis of that initial decision to enter into the good of the redemptive act, was to enjoy in increasing measure the regenerative purpose of God in restoring boy, girl, man, or woman to the likeness of the one who as the creator made man the creature in his own perfect likeness and unblemished image. And of course, ultimately, none of us have finally been evangelized until the day we see the Lord Jesus face to face. John reminds us of this. He said, 
what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We don't really know yet, ultimately, what we will be. But at least, he said of this, we may be completely assured. When he appears, the Lord Jesus, we will see him as he is. And then we'll be like him. Then we'll be like him. And in his likeness forever with the Lord. And John says, then we'll be evangelized. Restored from created likeness to recreated likeness. Restored to our true humanity. Man again, from God's point of view. At last we will have entered into the good of gospel. In its totality. And finally, our Lord Jesus will be able, in all eternity, to look at us and see in us that for which his precious blood was shed. see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied satisfied God will be satisfied when of man he can say <coughs> then what he once of man could say when first he made it good very good that's what the gospel's all about that's why the Lord Jesus came to this world. And so to these who've taken that first initial, essential, baby step <clears throat> in accepting Christ as their Redeemer, in the first chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, verse 15, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this, in so many words, he goes on to say, is the burden of my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, that you also may have as your supreme personal preoccupation to know him as it is mine. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. By that revelation without which no truth, no matter how true, can become experiential in your life or mine. You see, it's one thing to master an academic fact, a theological proposition, to memorize concepts. But it's quite another thing for that truth that you've mastered <laughs> to master you and become incarnate, fleshed out in the nitty-gritty of living 24 hours a day until at last with the apostle you can say life itself for me isn't a program isn't an ambition 
life itself for me is a person. Life is not an activity, except insofar as that activity represents the activity of the person who has become my life. To me, to live is Christ. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of God's power usward who believe. according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul says, I want you to know <clears throat> the exceeding greatness of God's power to us would who believe. The power as he speaks of it in that third chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, the power that that resurrection exerts over all believers. I want you to know the exceeding greatness of God's power to us, Lord, who believe, who have entered into that faith relationship. It isn't the lot of all men. It may be the lot of all men. But it is only the lot of those who believe. And I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of God's power to us, Lord, who believe. Secondly, he says, I want you to know what is the hope of his calling. And I want you, thirdly, said the apostle, to know what is the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Those three things. The exceeding greatness of God's power to us who believe, the hope of his calling, and the glory of his inheritance <laughs> in the saints. And the apostle knows perfectly well that you and I will understand the hope of our calling and understand the exceeding glory of his inheritance in the saints only in the measure in which we have come to understand the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe what he's saying would be comprehended maybe in this question that I might put to you right now What happened to you when you were born again? What really happened to you when you were born again? You see, the tendency is for us to relegate that moment in time when we first received Christ as Redeemer to the past. It's a cherished memory. We're happy that it happened we're grateful to those who led us to that moment of choice but we seldom pause long enough to discover in our hearts really what happened let me put it another way 
What did it take for God to bring about in your personal experience what the Bible calls spiritual new birth, regeneration? What did it take for you to be born again? And when you pause long enough to recognize what it took for God to bring about in your heart and mind that spiritual new birth, which was the springboard of our Christian lives, we begin for the first time maybe to understand the solid substance of our faith and that from which everything must derive if it's to be legitimate and valid and right. And of any timeless word. Because what the apostle you see here is saying to these new converts. That it took as much divine energy expended by God himself. To bring about in their experience a new birth. As it took God in raising his son from the dead. No less divine energy. No less of the resources of God in heaven were expended in the moment of your new birth than God expended in that moment of time when he raised Christ from the dead. Did you know that? Did you know that? You see, the moment you really begin to understand that, you can't dismiss new birth as simply a passing experience, as something that happened. He says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of God's power to us word, who have entered into the life of faith, who believe. It is according, he continues, to the mighty power which God wrought in Christ when he, God, raised him from the dead. No less a miracle was enacted, no less divine energy was expended, in your new birth than that which God mustered in the day that he raised his son our Lord Jesus from the dead that's incredible so if we're to understand the Christian life if I'm to understand personally my new relationship to God as a professing Christian I shall never begin to understand until first I've understood what happened to the Lord Jesus in the day that the Father raised him from the dead? The first man who was ever raised from the dead. You see, our identification with Christ in death and resurrection is sometimes described as a Pauline doctrine. You know that those who major upon the fact that not only did the Lord Jesus die objectively for you and for me, vicariously, doing his thing 2,000 years ago to pay our debt and reconcile us to a holy God, but that we, in the economy of God, were judicially executed in his person, were identified subjectively with him and buried. To begin an entirely new life God imparted in the person of somebody whose presence was restored at that moment of redemption by the gift to us of the Holy Spirit through whom we share his life now on earth 
as he then, for 33 years as man, shared the life of his father on earth. <clears throat> now, those who labor this and who say that from this premise alone springs the true Christian life. Not the victorious Christian life, not the higher life or the deeper life, but just the Christian life. You see, if you want to talk about a Christian life that isn't victorious, you're not talking about the Christian life. So you can't talk about the victorious Christian life. You see, if I were to come to you, if you were a shopkeeper and say, I'd like to pay for this in real money, <laughs> you might be a little surprised. You'd say, what other kind of money you got? Well, I've got some I printed myself, but I'd like to pay this in real money. <laughs> you see, and when you talk about the victorious Christian life, what you're talking about is the real Christian life. And I don't mean to say that the real Christian is always going to be victorious, but I'm talking about the Christian life. There's only one Christian life, and that's Jesus Christ himself. You can't talk about the Lord Jesus being victorious one day and not victorious the next day. <laughs> you see... He is the Christian life. To me, to live is Christ. To be alive from God's point of view is Christ. The only person he sees legitimately with the right to be alive in me is his son. He is the victory. There are no qualities in the life of Jesus Christ. He's not up one day and down tomorrow. There's only one Christian life. The Lord Jesus himself. This isn't a Pauline doctrine. This isn't an emphasis. This isn't a particular concept or a philosophy. It's the truth. It's the truth. Turn for a moment to the 26th chapter of the book of the Acts. Acts 26. The apostle here is speaking before King Agrippa, before whom he stood on trial for his life. And in the 22nd verse of that 26th chapter, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue, King Agrippa, unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying, none other thing than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. If anybody comes to you and say, well, I don't stand too much for that Pauline doctrine, just refer them, would you, to Acts 26, where Paul immediately and personally repudiates for one moment the suggestion that he is the author of a new slant. Saying, none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Everything valid in the New Testament concerning your relationship and mine toward the Lord Jesus on the grounds of redemption and by virtue of this spiritual regeneration is simply a consummation of all that God foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures brought only to its glorious consummation in the person of the one who was the living word was the substance of the written word. None other things. God hasn't changed his mind. The gospel that has been entrusted to us 
is that which God preached to faithful Abraham. It was fashioned in the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the eternal ages of the past, before ever the world was. It's truth. And in the one who is the author of truth, there is no shadow of turning, neither any variableness, James tells us. First chapter of his epistle. The 18th and the 19th verses. It's by this truth that you and I are begotten. True forever. God doesn't change his theology. Man does. Man changes his theology about every ten days. That's why you're in a bad way if you're trusting your ultimate and eternal destiny or your day-to-day -day walk as a Christian upon the latest theological quirk. This is the truth once delivered. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And what God said by the prophets then, God has said by his Son now. These were they who, as the apostles, were allowed in the goodness and providence of God to re-echo the timeless, eternal, immutable, redemptive, and regenerated purpose of a God who knows no shadow of turning. You couldn't be safer than at home base in Christ. That's why, of course, the ultimate remedy for every cult, heresy, exaggeration, overemphasis, extremity, error, is a true Christology. A true Christology. To know him. That's why Paul was supremely concerned in his own preoccupation about knowing him. Because he knew that if only knew him, he knew truth. saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ, here's the redemptive act, should suffer. That's the redemptive act. That's reconciliation to God by his death, of which we were reminded in the earlier hour. He should suffer. But not only that, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. That's regeneration. That's new birth. One spells redemption, the other spells regeneration. That the Lord Jesus should suffer the redemptive act and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. Regeneration, new birth. Was the Lord Jesus the first to rise from the dead? Who raised Lazarus from the dead? The one who was the first to rise from the dead. Who didn't rise from the dead until after he'd raised Lazarus from the dead? <laughs> Sounds very simple, doesn't it? What about Jairus' daughter? What about the Shunammite's little boy whom Elisha raised from the dead? Maybe Paul's in error 
Maybe he's overlooked something. Maybe in his old age he's getting absent-minded. <laughs> no, he's talking about new birth. He's talking about the very heart of the gospel. Regeneration. He's talking about that for which the precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed. The redemptive act that was to precipitate the regenerated purpose that would restore to man the life that was forfeited in Adam. He of all men the first to whom that life was restored that was ever forfeited by man. He was the second only of all mankind who ever died for sin. And he was the first of all mankind who was ever raised from the dead. We're not going to stay there, but just glance in the first chapter of Peter's first epistle. 1 Peter, chapter 1. We've cited from John, we've cited from James, we cite from Peter. This isn't a Pauline doctrine. This is what God had said through the prophets and Moses should come. <clears throat> Took a long time for Peter to discover this because he was as dumb as the rest in that Bible class that the Lord Jesus taught for three years. And as I've reminded <clears throat> some of you on many occasions past, nobody have a, had a duller Bible class than Jesus Christ. One of the things that should encourage us all whose ministry it is on occasions to teach, and that's all of us. Your neighbors, your friends, your workmates, you're a teacher if you're a Christian. A mom and a dad with your own kids around the breakfast table, you're a teacher if you're a Christian. So don't get discouraged if what you have to say doesn't first penetrate. Lord Jesus taught the disciples for three years and nothing penetrated. Nothing, absolutely nothing. They were as solid as they come. It's kept me preaching for 48 years. That's why I'm never unduly dismayed when I visit a Torchbearer Bible School. Because I always think they couldn't be worse than that lot. They may be pretty tough, some of them, but not worse. <laughs> so it took Peter a long time. But what a marvelous thing it was when he discovered the power that God exerted in his life when he raised him from the dead. As once he had raised his son from the dead. For as much, he says in the 18th verse of the first chapter of 1 Peter, for as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain behavior, received only by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot, he suffered. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, who was made manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So Peter discovers the redemptive act 
something that he didn't want, nor could believe in, his, in the resurrection. But now he knows, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of God's dear Son, redemption. But Peter discovered there was something more than redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because the shed blood of Christ, who suffered, was designed simply to precipitate that regenerative purpose whereby he is the first to be raised from the dead would be the forerunner, the firstborn among many brethren. who would share his resurrection. That's why in the third chapter, uh, the, I beg your pardon, the third verse of that first chapter of his first epistle. I like the way it's put here in the Amplified New Testament. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. By his boundless mercy, we have been born again to an ever-living hope. Listen to this very carefully. You may have overlooked it. Being born again to an ever-living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Maybe if I'd asked you, you know, taking you by surprise, what did Christ do for you that you might be born again? What, in all probability, would have been your immediate answer? In all probability, he died for me. But you see, really, you'd be wrong. I would understand what you would mean. But it might reflect an inadequate understanding of what happened when you were raised from the dead, yourself, in spiritual new birth. The Bible clearly teaches us that we are redeemed, reconciled to God from our state of enmity, being alienated from the life of God, dead in trespasses and sins, that peace is established between the guilty and the innocent, between the offended God and the offending, on the grounds of that atoning work that Christ accomplished when he died for you and for me 2,000 years ago. But it's equally clear from the teaching of God's word that if we are reconciled to God by his death, that spiritual resurrection that the Bible calls new birth takes place because of his resurrection. We're born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why, of course, needless to say, in the 15th chapter of the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, Verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. In other words, says Paul, no matter what you may believe about the death of Christ, no matter you credit him with an atoning and vicarious sacrifice, Maybe you would acclaim him with John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world and see him there hanging on a Roman gallows with nails 
through his hands and feet and a crown of thorns upon his head and blood and spickle trickling down his cheeks. Okay, believe it all, said Paul. But if he isn't risen from the dead, whatever you believe, it's useless. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. If all I can tell you, says Paul, that Jesus died, that you might be forgiven, then all is in vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he, God, raised up Christ whom you raised, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. If the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. They also which have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the, notice the word, first fruits of them that slept the first who ever died and to whom that life forfeited in death that life was restored now to understand this is to understand the exceeding greatness of God's power to us would who believe it demanded of God no less divine energy to bring about in your heart and mind a spiritual new birth than it demanded of God to restore to the Lord Jesus his sinless incarnate son that life that for your sake and mine he deliberately laid down when he died upon the cross. That's why, and you needn't turn to this, but make a mental note of it, because we may later need to refer to it again. In the second of his two epistles, Peter in the first chapter and the third verse said, it is according to his divine power God has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. It's according to his divine power. God gives all that pertains to being alive and being alive the moral capacity to be godly. It takes divine power. It takes more than a few lectures in Bible school. It takes more than attendance at church for 25, 50 or 75 years. It takes more than a theological tome. It takes more than a little booklet. Or some volume you can buy in the local Christian bookstore. A do-it-yourself kit. It takes more than sincerity. It takes more even than a personal love and devotion toward the Lord Jesus. The disciples had all of that in the three years in which they were such abysmal failures. 
what it takes for a man to be alive and what it takes for a man being alive to exercise that divine energy that transforms his life and makes him godlike is the divine power. According to his divine power, that means all the illimitable resources of deity, all the power, the energy that God can lay hands on. That's what it takes. To give to a man life, and godlikeness. That's why Paul was concerned that those who had made their decision for Jesus, who had been what we call today converted, which is valid because except a man be converted, becoming just like a little child, he won't enter the kingdom of heaven. But this is why Paul, recognizing that these had made that decision, could be numbered amongst the converted, would go a little farther than simply knowing that their sins were forgiven, that they'd changed their destination from hell to heaven. He said, I want you to know what it's all about, what God had in mind, what the end product was. In the councils of heaven, when between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that plan was conceived to be brought to its glorious consummation in the incarnate word on a rugged Roman gallows in death and resurrection. Well, what did it take for God to raise Jesus from the dead? What happened on the cross? Because, you see, unless you and I understand the nature of his death, we'll never understand the nature of his resurrection. And if we don't understand the nature of his resurrection, we will never understand the nature of our own. In other words, being Christians, because we have become Christians, we won't even know what it is we're supposed to be. It's always good to begin at the beginning. So turn to the book of Leviticus. And chapter seven and chapter seventeen and verse eleven. And this is crucial. Absolutely crucial to our understanding, first of Christ's death, and secondly, the nature of his resurrection. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And then speaking of the office of the priest in the end of verse 13, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life. End of verse 14. For the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. So what does blood speak of in the Bible? Life. You see, because we are constantly being confronted with the death of the Lord Jesus upon the cross, 
which involved the shedding of his blood, we have accumulated in our minds a picture that blood speaks of death. But nowhere in the Bible does blood speak of death. What speaks of death in the Bible is the shedding of blood. That's quite different. The shedding of blood, that speaks of death. But not blood itself. Blood speaks of life. The life is in the blood. You needn't turn to these passages, but for your future reference, you might like just to scribble in the margin. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4. Genesis 9 verse 4. Flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. Genesis 9 4. Deuteronomy 12 23. 12 23. Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou mayest not eat the life with the flesh. So again and again, underlined in God's word, is that blood speaks of life. Blood does not speak of death, life. Now that's demonstrably obvious. If you were involved in a very serious car wreck, badly injured, others around you might recognize at once that you were in danger by virtue of the injuries of bleeding to death. Bleeding to death. What do they mean by that? Bleeding to death. Losing so much of your life that all that is left is death. Because that's all that death is. Death is the residue. What's left over when there's no life left? So they would apply a tourniquet. And in applying a tourniquet, they would endeavor to keep life in the body. And they'd rush you off to hospital. It might well be, and we'll talk about this a little later, it might well be that when you get to the hospital, they discover that you've lost already so much of your life, blood, that you're still in danger of dying. So what will they do? Immediately, they will give you a blood transfusion. From the bank, they'll borrow some life that somebody has stored. When one of our directors, Bernhard Raich, was so seriously injured just over a couple of years ago, 36 blood transfusions to keep him alive. They had to keep putting life back into his body. Life back into his... What do they mean, putting life back into blood? blood because blood is the life thereof now what the bible says is that without the shedding of blood no forgiveness there's going to be no forgiveness god says for any guilty sinner unless life has been forfeited but the bible tells us equally clearly that physical blood, that which represents physical life, is not in itself adequate to reconcile a guilty sinner to a holy God. Hebrews chapter 10. <coughs> Hebrews in chapter 10.
Let me remind you of the 22nd verse that I just cited of the preceding chapter, Hebrews 9, 22. Almost all things are by the law, that is the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, purged with blood. The heifer, the bullock, the lamb, the dove. Without shedding of blood, the forfeiture of life, no remission, no forgiveness. But he goes on to tell us in the first verse of the 10th chapter, the law having a shadow of good things to come. That ceremonial law that demanded the shedding of the physical blood of an animal that it might forfeit its physical life. That was a shadow only of good things to come. Not the very image of the thing. The law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. In those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. The high priest would go into the holiest of all, first shedding the blood of a bullock for his own sins and that of his family and then he'd take a goat and shed its blood and sprinkle the mercy seat for himself having already offered the atonement now for the nation every year a remembrance a remembrance 4 verse 4 it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin in other words, there was a quality of death that was not in itself adequate to reconcile a guilty sinner to a holy God. Physical death enacted by the shedding of physical blood. That in itself could never reconcile a guilty sinner to a holy God. It was a shadow only of good things to come. Every priest, verse 11 of that chapter, standeth daily ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never Take away sins. But this man, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Who could cry before he left that body nailed to a cross that they placed in a tomb. It's finished. All over. Tetelestai. Paid in full. That for his dear sake, God, looking upon any little boy, girl, man or woman, out of any nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, race, creed, class or color, pleading that blood that he shed, that life he laid down. God could say of that little boy, girl, man, or woman, I will remember your sins no more. Because this was one sacrifice for sins forever. 4 verse 14 of that chapter, By one offering, he, our Lord Jesus, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. 
whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness for us. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that the Lord Jesus there on the cross enacted a sacrifice that would be timelessly efficacious, demanding no repeat forever. How did the Holy Spirit bear witness? Of course, he bears witness in your heart and mind the moment he comes to take up residence. But what public demonstration did the Holy Spirit bear to the fact that this one sacrifice for sins in the person of God's incarnate Son was forever? Beautifully depicted. In the ninth chapter, notice this, in the seventh verse, into the second, the holiest of all, went the high priest alone, the holy of holies. Hebrews 9, 7. Into the second went the high priest alone every year, not without blood, which he offered first for himself, the bullock, and for the errors of the people, the goat. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, that veil through which, still intact, the high priest had to enter alone once a year on pain of death to make the yearly sacrifice for himself and the people. That veil of the temple intact testified according to the Holy Spirit that the way into the presence of God for a guilty sinner on earth was not yet made manifest. <coughs> but when the Lord Jesus hung on that cross where in his own body on the tree he bore our sins after those three hours of darkness, crying, finished, what happened? The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. The Holy Spirit now signifying that he, the forerunner, through death and resurrection, had accomplished that atoning work that will allow today any boy, any girl, any man, any woman, anywhere without priest or sacrifice to enter on the basis of repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus into the presence of a holy God, unashamed and unblameable. I will remember your sins no more. There must, therefore, have been a significant difference between the shedding of that blood by our Lord Jesus on the cross and the shedding of the blood of those heifers and goats and lambs and doves and bullocks that were brought in the Old Testament in obedience to the ceremonial law. And of course there was. Because the difference, you see, was in the quality of the life that was laid down. The life that was laid down by the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the heifers and the doves was physical life. But that life that was laid down upon the cross was not the physical life of our Lord Jesus, though he suffered physical death. For he tasted death in all its forms. 
for every man, physical and spiritual. But that life which the Lord Jesus on the cross laid down, that you and I might be reconciled on the basis of that atoning work, was that very life that was once forfeited by Adam in the day that man fell, the life of God. That's why the Lord Jesus was the second and only other man that ever walked this earth who died because of sin. Not his own. As Adam died on the basis of committed sin, so the Lord Jesus, God's incarnate Son, who knew no sin, died on the basis of imputed sin. He being credited with the guilt of a lost, fallen world, the heirs of a fallen Adam. He was the second and the last man ever to die for sin. But he was the first of those two men who died, the first and the last Adam, the first man and the second, the one of the earth, earth he created, the other the Lord from heaven, conceived and born of the Holy Ghost. He was the first of those two to whom there was ever restored that life in resurrection that was forfeited by Adam and by him in death, the life of God. And that took place at the end of those three hours of darkness. One day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day and three hours in eternity when the Father and the Holy Spirit had had no option but to withdraw their presence from the Son of God made sin for us upon the cross. As he, the Lord Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit had once had had no option but to withdraw their presence from Adam. That was the day that the first Adam died. And this was the day the second Adam died. And for three hours on the cross, a man physically alive, soulishly active, hung for your sake and mine, spiritually dead. He died. He died that we might be forgiven. Don't just be overwhelmed by some emotional feeling of sympathy or pity for a man dying as though he were a noble martyr. The physical agony of Roman crucifixion, excruciating as that may well have been, this never, ever could have redeemed your soul or mine. For the physical life laid down by beast or man never could have requited the judgment of God for the sin that forfeited in man that quality of life for which man was made, the life of God himself. He died. He died that we might be forgiven. Then at the end of those three hours, the Holy Spirit was restored to his human spirit. And before ever he left that body, and before ever they put that body in the tomb, the Lord Jesus had become the first man rise again from the dead the first fruits of them which slept 
The veil of the temple rent from top to bottom, heralded access for every guilty sinner worldwide into the presence of a holy God in the name of Jesus. He left that body, went to paradise, the place where all the Old Testament saints were on tiptoe waiting for the redemptive act. There was Abel who shed that little lamb's blood a better sacrifice than that of Cain but the blood of that lamb never ever could nor did take away his sin but Abel was there waiting waiting David was there Elijah was there Abraham was there waiting waiting for the Lord Jesus to come in triumph risen from the dead to take them that great multitude of captives into the presence of God that they might enter into the good of what now had been accomplished for the substance had swallowed up the shadow. As once, you see, the fire in the Old Testament had burned the sacrifice. Now at last, the sacrifice had consumed the fire. There's now no more sacrifice for sins. It's finished. It's all over. What did God do when he raised his son from the dead? He restored to the Lord Jesus that life that for your sake and mine he deliberately laid down. Resurrection. This is the exceeding greatness of God's power to us, Lord, who believe. For it is according to the working of his mighty power which he, God, wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins for because he suffered a death like ours you and i in response to our faith and true repentance toward god can today enjoy a resurrection like his he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt We could not pay. But from the moment of that triumphant cry, finished. In the moment of repentance, in response to faith, there is restored to us by the same mighty power of God that life that was then restored to him. And you're raised from the dead. Be added to the Lord, a living individual member in particular of the new body corporate presented by the Father to the Son on the day of Pentecost when he was given a second body in which to walk this earth with hands to work, with feet to walk, with lips to speak, with eyes to see. Yours and mine. Help us to realize, loving Savior, this morning that as those who are yet alive and remain and walk this planet, in our redeemed humanity, we are the custodians of your resurrection life.
For by that Holy Spirit, through whom there was restored to you that life that for our sakes you laid down, so by that same Holy Spirit, you now, Lord Jesus, share that life with us. What a privilege. That you may walk again this earth, the Word made flesh. Be the means whereby your life may be communicated to the world in which we live. And some little child, with our hand, feel your touch. Through our lips, some frightened lady, broken-hearted, with burdens almost too great to bear. And hear you speak. And a man running away from life because circumstance threatens to crush him will suddenly in our presence discover there's a God who cares enough to listen and who's big enough to do something about it. This is the privilege you've given to us. To bear witness to the world. That you're alive. Thank you. For suffering a death like ours. We might share today. A resurrection like yours. on earth, on the way to heaven, and then forever, in your own dear and precious name.